uh, meal auction, raise over $500. So along with the $376 that was made from the bait sale last Sunday, we've combined the two. We've, we're going to match the offering, and we've already called uh, with, a, with a total for our offering. So we thank you for giving to move the missions. Yes. But tonight... Brother Stark, we ask you to come, take your liberty, preach what the Lord has given you, and uh, Amen. Let you loose. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The music choice, nobody knows what I've been teaching except my wife, and even then I'm not sure she's really been able to follow what I've been blabbing about. Um, the music choice tonight really went along with what I'm talking about. Uh, be seated. The, the gist of what I'm talking about tonight is just a simple topic. Uh, God restoring our union with Him is the, is the title of my message. And it's really beautiful how this morning's message kind of dips into that. You know, the idea of God with us, Christ with us, and that he's, you know, he loves each of us with a particular love. I've said that before. I, I think that, you know, if God is a heavenly father, that he loves us with a love the same way that a father would love his children. He's not, you're not going to love your children the exact same way for each child because they're all different. You're going to show them a particular love, not that you're loving them at different variety or, or excuse me, different levels, but you're loving them with a variety. So, <clears throat> I was reading in scripture one day and it, it just kind of struck me. Paul writes in Romans 13, 14, he says, put on Christ. And I just thought that was a really weird turn of phrase because it literally means to put on like, like you would wear a jacket. So, I'm called to wear Christ. So, I had all kinds of weird ideas for this sermon and then I came across... Uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper, he's a young Lutheran theologian. He has a book titled Union with Christ. And I haven't read it, but what intrigued me was the subtitle for the book. He says, Salvation as Participation. And I just thought that was really interesting because there is this tension in Scripture. I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's not of my own merit. I don't bring anything to God. Right? That famous hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But there's still something asked of, right? A vast majority of the epistles, Paul's constantly admonishing the church. Do this. Don't do that. Please, for the love of God, stop doing that. Please, for the love of God, continue doing this. And so this, this lesson's kind of evolved somewhat. So if it seems kind of uh, thrown together, it, it might be. But this doctrine of union with Christ is what we're going to be looking at tonight. That salvation has a participatory element with it. And that we can be encouraged that Christ is with us in our good works. That we don't, I don't have to do good works all by myself. I don't have to muster up the goodness. But that God is with me. That he is enabling me and willing me to do good things. Uh, good news is I don't think Pentecostals have much of a problem talking about God's dwelling within us. We talk about the dwelling of the Holy Spirit a lot. Um, but I think this idea is kind of neglected in mainstream churches today. 
We talk a lot about holiness, and we talk a lot about God inside of us, but I do think that we need to be reminded that holiness and righteousness is not just agreeing to a list of rules or guidelines, but it's the Holy Spirit transforming my entire being, my inside and my outside, and that I ultimately don't make myself holy, God does. And so just a quick overview of what we're going to do. We're going to spend hopefully not too long. Um, so we're going to establish that we're made in the image of God. Then we're going to talk about how sin ruins that image and brings us into slavery to unrighteousness. And then we're going to talk about how Christ came to restore us to the image of him and he accomplishes this through union with him through the Holy Spirit. So Genesis 1, 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Some translations say in the likeness of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the very, the very beginning of Scripture, we're presented with the fundamental truth about humanity. We find God making man, but he does so differently than any other of the rest of the created order. Stars, planets, suns, animals, fish, doves. He makes man uniquely. He doesn't use his voice. Seems like the rest of the Genesis story, he's using his voice. He's saying things, and they're happening. But with man, it says that he actually gets intimate, and he gets in the dirt. He forms man from the dust of the earth. And then he breathes in man with his own breath. And so theologians have long held that man is categorically different from any other created thing. Not even the angels are made in the like manner that we are created. We're made in his likeness. Now we like to talk about this when it comes to the equality of each person. We talk about we're all made in the image of God, so we ought to treat each other equally. That's very true. Um, the Declaration of Independence got this opening line from this truth. Um, all men are created equal. Why is that? Because we're created by a creator. We're all made the same. We're not just accidents. Uh, the famous slogan of the British abolitionist, abolitionists was that of a slave crying out, am I not a man and a brother? So for them, the fundamental evil of slavery was that we are taking God's creation our fellow brothers, our fellow men, and putting them beneath us as if we have any right to lord over them. <clears throat> and we recognize this truth today. All humans, including the, from the elderly to the embryo, were all created by God. And we're all done so with a divine purpose. Again, we're not accidents. God doesn't just sneeze and we happen and he goes, oh, well, I guess I'll, I'll make something out of this accident. The Lord creates each of us with a purpose. And therefore, by killing or taking away the rights of each other, we transgress not only men, but we transgress God. So the image of God's not just about our equality. We're made to reflect him. We are made to have dominion over the earth in the way that God has dominion over everything. God rules with perfect justice and perfect truth, and so should we. But we do not. Right? The history of humanity is one of great sin, to read history can often be like reading the book of Judges, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sin is not merely a lack of warm feelings. It's not merely coldness or, 
or even pure evil as some might think of it today, but sin is rebelling against God. And it tarnishes and it rusts and it disfigures the image of God until it is hardly recognizable. And our world today shuns the existence of sin. Many have the hilariously naive view that humanity is good by default, that evil men are somehow created. But I want to point to four authors that help us demonstrate that this is not the case. So the reality of sin in everyone, and I am pulling from secular sources to do this, but I think it's important to note that there are even people who don't believe in a Christian God or don't believe in God at all who will tell you, no, evil is real and it's in everybody. Um, uh, Ir Irvin Staub is a psychologist. He focuses on peace and violence. He wrote a really interesting book. I read sections of it called The Roots of Evil, The Origins of Genocide and Other Group Violence. Quote, some writers make it appear that evil and that its executors in the totalitarian state are basically different from the evil deeds or perpetrators elsewhere. So this was, he's writing about the Nazi, about Nazi Germany and how everybody was writing about evil right after everything happened and the dust settled. He was saying, but large-scale murder was not discovered by totalitarian systems and human beings without special creativity and talent have normally been the instruments of destruction. Those who assembled Christians in ancient Rome to throw them to lions did not need to possess greatness. In the Middle Ages, priests who identified rich witches to be burnt had no great vision or intellectual powers. And the disappearance of murder of thousands of people in Argentina was, per was perpetuated by an authoritarian rather than a totalitarian system. In other words, evil that arises out of ordinary thinking and is committed by ordinary people is what is normal. It's not the exception. And so there's a book written by Christopher Browning called Ordinary Men. And he mentions this quote and he tries to bring to, to bear this point that ordinary people in Nazi Germany and ordinary people in the Soviet Union were the ones doing the evil. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian dissident under the communist government of the Soviet Union. He has this quote that I really love a lot. He says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. Evil and sin are very real. And we're all capable of it. Don't fool yourself. Our, our world is under this idiotic impression that there are some humans who are just, they're just too good. That some people can't really do evil. But we have all in some way tarnished the image of God. All the way from murder and abuse to just merely neglecting other people. We are all under condemnation, firstly, by not being the complete image of God in the world. We're incapable of measuring up to his holiness and to the fullness of his image. So the final author is not a secular one, the Apostle Paul. I think it's important to go over what he says about sin. Romans, 3, chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He's talking about, he's, Romans 1, he's bringing judgment to bear on the Gentiles. And then Romans 2, he brings a little bit more judgment to bear. And then Romans 3, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So he's saying the Jewish person might feel 
a certain benefit because, well, I'm Jewish. We received the covenant. We have the Mosaic law. God spoke with our forefathers. That puts me in a special position. And Paul is demonstrating, no, it doesn't matter your heritage. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your deeds. There's none righteous. No one seeks for God. If you want to translate that verse directly, you could even say there are no God seekers. We're all under condemnation, even the Jews who think that they make a clean getaway. But Paul gives us hope in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. This is a really beautiful passage. He says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. God has given us his righteousness. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus what we have before us revealed is the righteousness of God that he is the just judge as Paul points out in Romans 1 but now he's giving us the hope that he's also the one who justifies that it is God who judges us, but then he justifies us, counts us righteous in his sight because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. The doctrine of justification by faith, Tim Keller has this beautiful illustration where he talks about faith is the table in the rest of the furniture that is Christian doctrine. If you were to walk into a room and you saw some chairs and some paintings and a lampstand, but there's no kitchen table, you, you would be immediately confused. You'd be like, something very important is missing. And in fact, we're not even really sure exactly what the purpose of these chairs are. I guess this chair is going to be a table now because I put my food on this chair as I sit on this chair. And, but when we fully recognize that it is the righteousness of God that is put in my life that counts me justified, then everything else makes sense. That now I have a table to put my food at, the chairs all make sense, the arrangement of the lamp and the paintings make sense, everything works. I love the, Paul, I love the way Paul says it in chapter 4, verse 5. He said, God justifies the ungodly. I think we often think of it triumphantly that while we were sinners, God died for us. He showed his love for us. And that's true, but I fear that we tend to miss this. While we were ungodly, God justified us. God didn't wait for us to have enough goodness to accept us because all sin must be banished from his sight. He can't accept half good. He can't accept mostly sinless. We didn't come to God with a righteousness of our own and thereby earn God's favor and his grace. We came to God as sinners, ungodly, rebellious, not even able to measure up. Some of us didn't even really come to God. We're just wandering around in our own blindness. And yet he still justified us. He gave us grace and we said, Lord, I don't know what to do with this grace. Uh, I guess I'm going to give my life to you. And God says, you're forgiven. Here's my Holy Spirit. <clears throat> the late Presbyterian minister Tim Keller said it this way when 2 Corinthians 5.21 said God made him sin to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him so there's that union of Christ aspect we become the righteousness of God in Christ what that has to mean is that on the cross he was treated as if he had done everything that we had done 
so that when we believe, we're treated as if we've done everything he's done. That on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he did everything that I had done so that when I have faith, I'm treated as if I've done everything that he has done. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation. I've been justified. I'm washed. I'm clean. I'm, I'm made new by the Holy Spirit. Baptism in his name. My sins are gone. I am a new creature. I'm justified. I have no condemnation. And now I'm in union with him as a child of God. This is the power of God. We talk about being clothed in his righteousness. We've been going through the tabernacle in our youth Sunday school class, talking about how everything in the tabernacle points to the New Testament. And some people squint hard at it and even talk about how the colors of the curtains even point to the New Testament. And then I think it's really interesting because one of the things I want to highlight is that the temple sacrifices the Jewish people did, they didn't take away sin. They didn't, they didn't take away the sin they merely covered the sin. It talks about the sins being rolled over on the Day of Atonement. The writer of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats was not enough to take away sins or to remove them from us. And that's where Christ's sacrifice comes in. That's the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews is talking to Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to the Jewish lifestyle because they've been cut off, right? They were Jews in the Jewish community. Now they're Christians, so the Jewish community said, get out of here, you're not a part of us. And because the Jewish community has all the laws and the rules and the observances, you would have Christian Jews who they probably couldn't even eat with their families because they're not Jewish anymore. They've rejected the faith. And so they're thinking, they're, they've got this very strong temptation to go back to what they knew. And some Jews probably even talked about, man, weren't, weren't these sacrifices so great? And we had all these feast days and all these ordinances and rituals and there's such a, a beauty to it. And the writer of Hebrews basically says, but the beauty of Christ's sacrifice is it's the fulfillment of that Old Testament promise. It's fulfilling what all these things that you think are beautiful, and maybe they are, but all those things are pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. The, when, when Jesus, excuse me, when the Lord says to Ezekiel, I will put a new heart in them. It's the fulfillment of that promise. We're not just forgiven by God, we are being transformed by Him. He's placed His law in my heart, He's placed his Holy Spirit inside of me. There's no longer a separation of God and man that goes back to the garden and is still present in the tabernacle and the Jewish sacrifices. The veil has been torn. We are under a new covenant, and God makes our being his tabernacle. He doesn't have one big temple where we all gather together and we all worship him purely. He's made me his tabernacle. He's made you his dwelling place. God is causing our hearts and our inward being to be the holy of holies. He's transforming us and he's sanctifying us through that union. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Christ is reconciling the world to himself. He's restoring what was lost in the garden. He's restoring that union and he's bringing the fullness of the union through the tabernacle to completion. Revelation 19.7-8 I love the way it says it. Let us rejoice and exult, give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself. So she didn't clothe herself of her own strength. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen 
is the righteousness of the saints. As Christians, we are clothed in his righteousness, and this is something that we get to participate with God in. Romans 13, I'm going to skip down to verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in riotous parties and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. So we're already seeing this Christians walk one way, the non-Christians walk another way. In 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So that word put on, the Greek word there, it literally means to clothe. Ephesians 4.22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on that same Greek word, clothe yourself in the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So we see that restoration. The Holy Spirit is restoring us to true righteousness and holiness as we put on the new man. We remove our filthy rags of assumed righteousness and we put on Christ. I'm going to read a long passage of scripture. Bear with me. I think it's good. You could really, you could preach a series of sermons on this chunk. Um, I'm not that good. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be going verse 1 through 17, if you want to read along with me. She's got them on the screen, though. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. Apologies. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Christ has been enthroned. He's our king. And we're to put our mind where that is. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So we have union, and we have restoration. So what am I supposed to do with this information? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once also walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have clothed, have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and he is in all. Verse 12, put on or clothe then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has also forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness is not an option. That's the struggle. Forgiveness is not something I give to some people, but you don't deserve it. Well, Paul is saying, forgive others as Christ has forgiven you. Well, I definitely didn't deserve his forgiveness. 
and he gave it to me anyway. And he continues to pour out forgiveness and continues to pour out grace and mercy. So if I have to forgive somebody for the 20th time this year, that's just how I show the love of Christ. And above all, I'm in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It's, it's difficult living holy, having a right attitude, and so the struggle is, wait a minute, I'm supposed to forgive everybody the way that Christ has forgiven me. The Roman magistrates who treat me poorly because I'm a Christian, my Jewish family who doesn't talk to me because I'm a Christian, my friends who don't talk to me because I'm a Christian now, I'm supposed to forgive them the way Christ has forgiven me? How do I do that? I can't even begin to understand. How do I live holy? It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. I'm telling you, great gratitude and thankfulness are a very underrated cure to problems. It's very difficult. I know. I know, I get ungrateful a lot. And I just have to remind myself, I have good reason to be thankful. I have reasons to rejoice. That even when I feel like I'm deprived and God's not giving me what I deserve or, or even God's not giving me the same love that somebody else is getting or the, you know, well, they're, they're getting these lavish gifts and can I get some lavish gifts? Because I'm, I'm at least as good as they are, right? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of measured, so can I get what they're getting? And you start to get ungrateful, but when you're thankful, when you approach God with thankfulness, when you enter his gates with thanksgiving, that really helps the peace of God reign in your heart, and it makes forgiveness that much easier because you realize everything I have is not mine. I didn't earn everything that I have, and even the things that I did earn, they're technically from God anyway. So that makes it so much easier when I fully recognize the union of God with me and the forgiveness of God in me makes it that much easier for me to forgive other people. I love verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. <clears throat> Christ came to restore the image of God in us. The goal is to restore us to holiness because without holiness, Scripture says we cannot see God. This is how we have right standing and right relationship with God through union with the Holy Spirit. This union that we have with Him allows us not just to be forgiven completely of sin, but to have it removed from our lives. We become a new creature. We have been bought from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin, and we are now under God's lordship. It was he who bought us. When we were fully deserving of being ignored by him, he chose to nail our sins, not just in part, but the whole of our sins to the cross. That's the Christian assurance. He is with me in all things. He's working through me to do good works. He's speaking to me through his word, and he's showing me love all of the time. Union with Christ means that Christ is in me, Christ is with me, and that Christ is for me. Right, that song that we talk about, he is for you, he is with you, and you're coming, and you're going. These are the blessings of a Christian. No matter where I go, the Lord is my shepherd. He's my high priest who intercedes for me. He's my father who lavishly pours out gifts and blessings my way. And he's my comforter that when everything is gone and I don't see the gifts and I don't see the blessings, he's comforting me. The, the last couple years, you know, Rachel and I, we've had a lot of turmoil individually and as a married couple. And I keep coming back to the book of Job. I, I thought I understood it. 
I thought I got the lesson, but I keep coming back to it. It keeps popping up. And so I study it from time to time, bits and pieces. And it, it's just served to me well as a source of comfort. And maybe one day I'll, I'll have enough to be able to teach a series on it in the youth class. Because I keep discovering there's a fair amount of depth that comes from this story. And there's a fair amount of peace that comes from it as well. We all know the story of Job. God says, you know, Satan comes to God and starts accusing and taunting. And, and God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan goes, well, yeah, of course he's your servant. He's got a whole bunch of stuff. All you do is bless him. I'd be your servant too if all you did was bless me. But as soon as you take things from him, he'll turn on you. So the Lord says, okay, let's see if you're right. Well, we know the end of the story. The Lord's right. Satan was wrong. And God used Job to not just prove to Satan that Job is right and that God is right, but the Lord proves to us what we can go through. And I think the linchpin for the book of Job is Job 23.10. <clears throat> Job gets done complaining. Job 23 is really nice. He gets done complaining. He brings his complaint before God, and he, he's praying to God, but it really seems to me like he doesn't expect that he's going to get an answer because he's talking and he's praying as if God's not actively hearing him. Because he, he even says, I look around and I can't see God. What a place to be in. When you look to where you used to see God, when you, when you come to church hoping to feel God like you did, and yet all these places you look and you just you see emptiness. But Job gives us a beautiful, there's a promise here, and he's showing us how to respond to darkness in our lives. Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. I'm stealing the sermon illustration, but it's a great one. You know what Job, you know what Job is referring to here? Metalworking. The image he paints is that, that God is the metalworker, and he's purifying the gold in a furnace. Oh, by the way, we're the gold. You see, the metalworker needs to get impurities out of the gold. That's how gold gets graded, right? 14 karat gold is gold mixed with a bunch of stuff. 24 karat gold is a lot more pure, or is it the most pure? There's grades to goldness, grades of purity to the gold. So that's how it gets real shiny. The metal worker has to get the impurities out. And so to do that, he places the gold in a special metal container called a crucible. I don't know if you've heard that word. I've only ever heard that word in terms of a trial, in terms of suffering. Well, there's, that's because it comes from this image. So this, this dirty gold is placed in the crucible and it's heated up. And as the gold goes through the fire, it heats up and the impurities rise to the surface. And each different level of impurity is removed by increasing the heat. And I find that's a lot like life. We think we're so godly. We think we've got it together. We're like, okay, I'm, I'm godly or at least godly enough for where I am in life. You know, I can't be too godly. I'm not old enough but maybe I'll get there, but I'm godly enough for right now. I'm good. And then struggle comes. And those impurities start to rise to the surface. And you realize what your real foundation is. It starts to get revealed what you're really leaning on. <clears throat> maybe it's your wealth. And you, you don't realize it because your wealth is there and you're leaning on it and everything's good. 
Maybe it's your family. Your family's there. You're leaning on it. It's all good. And then you lose a chunk of your wealth or you lose a member of your family or, or you, you lose somebody important in your life. And what, what do we say when this, how could this happen? We begin to have genuine panic and we begin to fear because that thing that kept us safe is fading away. My wealth, that was security. My wealth helped me. If I got sick, I can afford a doctor's visit. If my car breaks, I can afford to fix it. And then my wealth disappears, and all of a sudden you're like, what do I have to hold on to? And then you say that. Maybe, maybe you say that out loud. You're like, well, I don't have anything left. And then you sit there and go, am I neglecting God? Am I leaning on something other than him? See, the thing about a trial is that it reveals what we're truly putting our trust in. Am I trusting in the impurities that are going to rise to the surface? Am I putting my hope in my wealth? Am I putting my hope in my family, in my job, in my church? Or am I trusting the metal worker? Am I trusting the gardener? The Lord says that he prunes. I don't, I don't, I don't know if trees feel, but if I was a tree, pruning would not be comfortable. Because that's where they cut the branches. But the reason why they prune is so that it produces more fruit. Why don't we stand? It's, it's so easy for us to think of idolatry as statues. A statue, a picture... Or we think of idolatry as something evil, right? Somebody who sacrifices everything for money. Or somebody who sacrifices everything for status, right? They just want to be the president of big company X. And it's so easy for us as Christians to go, well, I don't want big company president status, and I don't need millions of dollars, so I don't have an idol. And then struggle comes. And you realize that you think you're leaning on the Lord, but you're leaning on what the Lord has given you. You're not leaning on the Lord. Because when that thing that he's given you starts to disappear, you feel yourself stumbling and falling and you start to think, what is going on? And God goes, you need to lean on me. You need to trust in me. And that's what it means to trust God, that, that everything can disappear. I can lose my house, I can lose my wife, but I still have the Lord. And there's peace and comfort in that. I know sometimes it sounds crazy, but that's the peace of the Holy Spirit. The really beautiful thing about this illustration of the metal workers is how does he know when the gold is pure? Right? How do you know, especially in the ancient days, how do you know that you've got pure gold? Well, he's taking out all the impurities, he's turning up the heat, it's getting hotter and hotter. Right? When you get struggles back to back to back, it might not be the Lord punishing you, it might just be the Lord getting impurities out and revealing to you what's really there because the, the depth of our prayer lives many times is formed in struggle and the, the depth of our relationship with God is formed in difficulty and sometimes we definitely don't realize that in the moment and sometimes we don't even realize that directly after we have that darkness but we realize that I'm closer to the Lord that through the struggles I love him more 
But how does the metal worker know when the gold is pure? Well, he knows the gold is pure when he can see his reflection in the metal. That's why the Lord puts us through trials. And that's why sometimes we put ourselves through trials. We fast, we make time for prayer, make time for Bible study, because I want him to be reflected in me. I want the image of God to be restored in me. And that's the comfort too, is that when I'm in the middle of my struggle, that he knows where I'm going. He knows the way that I take. Why don't we just pray and just ask the Lord to be with us. Lord, thank you for your word. The word that restores, the word that regenerates, the washing of the word that cleanses, purifies. Lord, thank you for the trials you've put me through. Thank you for the difficulties you've put me through. The ways in which you've shown me where I'm lacking, the ways in which you